Well, thank you so much for those uh, joyful, joyful words. And you will see a theme today in our services, and that is the theme of joy. And we are embarking on a new study this morning here at Chef, and uh, we want to welcome you to it. If you're visiting with us today, we, uh, we believe in teaching the Word of God here, and we will very frequently approach that in a verse-by-verse study. And we're going to be starting a new study this morning in the book of Philippians. If you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, we have, uh, my heart is just so full today. And uh, I, want to, uh, I want to really just jump right into it because there's so much that I want to cover beginning this uh, new book. Uh, be reading this book um, uh, in your personal devotional times. I'm grateful for Phil who also was moved to kind of give us a little bit of a head start into this book. And uh, I think we're in for a real treat here. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 is what we're going to cover this morning. But before we get into the actual text today, I want to just uh, answer the question, why should we study the book of Philippians? Why is this a, a letter of interest to us? Well, I think you're going to find, even in the theme of our music today, that Philippians is a joy-producing book. It is a joy-producing book. It is, in fact, known by most scholars as the epistle of joy. And it speaks to the issue of rejoicing and what it means to have true happiness. Joy is mentioned over 16 times in this epistle, and there's only four chapters in the entire book of Philippians. So that means four times per chapter we're hearing about joy. Certainly there are joy robbers on this earth, are there not? There's things that steal our joy, and many seem so happy in our day. And sometimes even Christians, you and I, can lack joy. Well, this is a reason to study the book of Philippians. It's also a peace-promoting book, considering the state of national distress, right? And the, and the difficulties that we're facing in national times and government and health and all of these things. So few have real peace in their hearts. You can just turn on the news and you can feel the, the stress and the tension and the lack of peace. Well, this is a peace-promoting book. It is said that the man who is willing to argue with himself is willing to argue with anyone. And really, this is what it's about, is that people are not at peace with themselves. They're not at peace with others because they're not at peace with God. It is also a Christ-exalting book. When we get to chapter 2, we will see that Christ is exalted above none other, given the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And as a result, naturally, it's a gospel-advancing book, is it not? Because when you have the source of joy and the source of peace and Christ exalted in amidst of a congregation, That is when the gospel advances, and gospel means good news, something to rejoice over. With that kind of as an introduction, I hope your appetite is sharpened for this great, great book entitled Philippians, the Epistle of Joy. I've entitled this morning's message, The Anatomy of a Joy-Filled Church. We want joy. We know joy is available, and we want it in our church. And by the way, I believe we have it in this church. Some of this may just be kind of a, uh, a checkup, as it were, to make sure that we still are, in fact, on track with a lot of these things. But this is the anatomy of a joy-filled church. And this morning, from this little text of Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2, I'm going to be giving you five elements of a joy-filled church. We're going to be talking about the anatomy of a church, really, this morning. We're going to talk about the infrastructure of a church. What makes a church a church? And in particularly, what makes it a joyful church? 
We're going to be looking at some core elements here which cause us to function with joy. And we find five of them in this rather common but not so common greeting. Would you follow along with me in the text this morning here? The Apostle Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless and honor His infallible Word this morning. If you are taking notes today, and I'd like you to do so, in your bulletin you will find five blanks we're going to work through with the remainder of our time here this morning. As I answer the question of what is the anatomy of a joy-filled church? What is the infrastructure? What is the skeletal structure at stake here this morning? I would like you to jot in first and foremost that a church, if it is to have joy, must first start with founding servants. Founding servants. Would you write that in your notes here? And pay attention to the very first part here. It says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Folks, this is the core foundational element of any church, but especially a joyful church. It must have founding servants. Now, Paul, also known as Shaul of Tarsus, remember Shaul, who with arrest warrants in hand was persecuting Christians and had to be knocked off his high horse, you recall, and blinded by God to say, Paul, why are you persecuting me? You're persecuting Christians, but you're persecuting me. And we're going to see the connection here later in the message. But Paul now has been converted. Saul, Shaul, has been converted to Paul the Apostle who wrote the majority of our New Testament. And today he writes, or at least in this time, he writes as a prisoner. He's a prisoner in Rome. You see in verse 7 of chapter 1, he says, I have you in my heart since both the time of my imprisonment and defense of the gospel. Uh, There's other references here. If you look down to verses 13 and 14, that Paul is in prison, it says. And the cause of Christ is advancing through the entire Praetorian Guard. This was the palace guard of Rome. He was in prison, uh, guarded by those who guarded the palace. Very important assignment there, the Praetorian Guard was, but Paul was subject to them. It was so serious, if you look in verse 20, that he says, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it out of this. He says, uh, may Christ always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And it was, no, um, it was nothing new for Rome to execute prisoners. And Paul didn't know whether he would live or die, but he believed that he would live. But Paul here is a founding servant. He also mentions Timothy, would you note? Timothy, whose name means one who honors God. Timothy was the son of a mixed marriage. His mother was Jewish. Jewish. His father was a Greek. And uh, he was trained in the scriptures. You'll see in 2 Timothy one by his grandma and his mother. Father did not have involvement in his upbringing, at least in the spiritual concerns, and his mother and grandma taught him the Word of God. Shows the importance of moms and grandmas in the lives of young men. And later it says that you've been trained in the sacred writings which can make you wise unto salvation. So Paul here recognized something in Timothy. We see this in Acts chapter 16. And you might even want to just make your way there eventually as we continue. We're going to be referencing Acts 16 from this a lot because that is where the Philippian church was born. And Paul meets Timothy in his 
more advanced age from youth. And he says, I need a partner with godly qualities to found a church, to engage in ministry and gospel efforts. And he saw something in Timothy that would make him a brilliant and helpful co-laborer here. Will you note that it says Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. You see, any founding members of a church or a missions organization or anything that has to do with biblical Christianity must first be servants. This is an interesting word here, folks. It's the word doulos. And really, the, the word means literally slaves. Slavery. There's a lot of discussion about slavery in our day today, but here 2,000 years ago, Paul was speaking of this issue here. And he says, he calls himself, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Powerful, powerful language here. What is he referring to here? Well, the Greek mind would hear this term doulos or douloi in the plural here. And immediately would draw to their attention, attention one who is owned by another. Now, no doubt, slavery in our American tradition has blighted our nation without question. But here Paul takes this term, this undignified aspect of being a slave and applies it to himself as slave of Christ, bondservant, bound to Christ. In the Greek mind, they knew this meant one thing. You were owned. You were purchased property. You were bound to another. And it refers to one who serves another in total disregard to his own will and to his own personal interests. And thus, Paul and Timothy are hereby owned and they are subservient to the master of a household, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Purchased not with money, but with His precious blood. Bound not by chains as it were, literally, but bound by constraints of love and gratitude. First, slaves of sin and Satan, and now slaves of Christ. Incidentally, in this era, there were three ways, maybe four ways, which you could become a slave. One way is that you could become a slave by conquest. If your nation was conquested in a time of war and you were overcome by, a, by an enemy power, you could very possibly become owned by that other nation and you would become their slaves. You could also become a slave by birth. Any child born of slaves in this day would automatically be a slave. That was just the life that was given to them from birth. You could also be a slave by debt if you owed too much money. Proverbs speaks about this, that the borrower can become slave to the lender. And you could also become a slave by committing crimes. And your punishment would be not necessarily to go to prison, not necessarily to go to death, but become a slave of those whom you have victimized. And so there were many ways you could become a slave, but it's interesting in all these ways, it is also true of Jesus who conquered our rebellious wills, did he not? And gave us new birth into his kingdom, and who paid our debt for our crimes against him, and we as a result become bondservants of Christ Jesus. These are the founding servants, Paul and Timothy. And this is what we need today, folks. This is what we need every day. This is what we need in every congregation. If it is to be a joyful congregation, we need founding servants of Christ. And I'm grateful for the founders of this local congregation, two of which remain with us to this day and which are here this morning. 
I look back at the names of the, of the quilt on the wall here that says Augustine and Barr and During and um, Andrzejczyk, I believe is how you pronounce that, and Reed. And, and these names ought not to be forgotten in our midst. And there will be a day when these names will pass from us, but we must always remember that if we are to be a joy-filled church, we must remember our founding fathers, as it were, and here, Paul and Timothy, as we will see as this message progresses, are declared as these founding servants of Christ. Anything founded on anything other than servitude to Christ will not be a joyful church. It will not be a peaceful church. It will not be a Christ-exalting, gospel-advancing church because it will not be a biblical church. Because bondage to anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ is in fact bondage leading to death. So we see that first and foremost, we must have a church that is founded by godly, godly servants of Christ. Let's look at another one this morning here. Follow along in your notes again as we look at point number two. Not only do we have founding servants for a joy-filled church, but we must have forgiven saints. We must have forgiven saints. Look at the text here. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. Here it is. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. This is you folks. This is me. You may not be a founding member of this church, but you are forgiven saints which comprise make up this very body. Forgiven saints. Here Paul addresses the entire Christian community in that locale. This, beloved, is a church. This is part and parcel of what it means to have a church, of what it means to be born again redeemed and saved if you are born again if you are redeemed if you are saved guess what folks you are a saint i am a saint the church has never and will never consist of unbelievers it only consists of believers and we will learn that godly believers and saints are interchangeable terms did you know that it's very important in our day because there's a lot of people that will cloud this meaning to, to a great confusion on the part of the saints. But the, saints have, the church has always been comprised of saints in its entirety. Now because of this confusion, I want to just develop this a little bit so we have clarity in our mind. What is Paul saying to the saints in Christ Jesus? I want to first of all say that he is not speaking to a direct, um, I'm sorry, to a group of elite Spiritual elite, super Christians, if you will, you will often see this approach in uh, Roman Catholic uh, circles or Eastern Orthodox circles or even in some Lutheran circles which will advance this concept of sainthood, right? And, and it's, it's, we have to have clarity on this because there are systems where people are officially canonized as saints as if they are above someone else because of their servitude or because of their holiness or because of their commitment or their hard work typically on earth. And then later in life, after they are dead, the church gets together and says, we need to canonize this person. We need to, we need to bring them into sainthood. And they're long gone and they've long lived their lives. Folks, I want to tell you today that if you are a believer trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and you find yourself manifested here at a local congregation today, you are already a saint. You don't need a denomination to bless you with sainthood. You don't need to wonder how you're going to be viewed at your death. You're already a saint upon birth into the kingdom of heaven. This is not a result of living a good enough life. 
a better enough life, a shining enough light, because none of us live that life if we're honest. If we're honest, we're not saints, right? So how does this work? We're going to continue with this here. The word simply means it's hagios in the Greek, or hagioi being plural. Whenever you see oi, that's a plural. It just means holy. It just means separate. It means that you've been set apart. It means you've been consecrated. And there's two parts to sainthood. Number one, you are set apart from evil. Note that you are removed from evil. But you are set apart unto service of God. So it's a two-part separation here. Separation from evil to service of God. And, and this word, I mean, you can do your own Bible study of this word, but we see this in Acts, um, Acts chapter 9 and verse 13. Um, remember Paul had been converted and Ananias was very unsure about receiving Paul and God had to actually appear to Ananias and say, because he said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man how much harm he did to thy saints at Jerusalem. He's, he's torn up the saints here. Well, what's a saint? Well, how could he do this if these saints were dead and already canonized by some church body somewhere? There wasn't even a church body. Saying, you're living saints at Jerusalem. He harmed them. He hurt them. And he killed some of them. 9.32, now it came about as uh, Peter was traveling through all those parts, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Just believers is all this word means. And I could take you to every verse after verse after verse. Romans 1, verse 7 to the saints who are at Rome. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the saints at Corinth, called as saints is what he says there. 2 Corinthians 1, 1 also refers to this. Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, 2, to the saints in Christ Jesus at Colossae. It is a common term he uses and it simply means believer. Now this is interesting here. Um, little story from... Henry, uh, Harry Ironside, actually James Boyce recounts this. He says during the, the days of Henry, uh, uh, Harry Ironside's ministry, before there were airplanes, Dr. Ironside used to travel, to many, um, travel many miles by train. On one of these trips, a four-day ride from the West Coast to his home in Chicago, the Bible teacher found himself to be in a company party of nuns. They liked him because of his kind manner and his interesting reading and exposition of the Bible. One day, Dr. Ironside began a discussion asking the nuns if any of them had ever seen a saint. And they all said that they had never seen one. He asked again if they would like to see a saint. They all said that they would like to see one. He then surprised them greatly by saying, I'm a saint. I'm Saint Harry. And then he took them verse by verse, some of the verses that I've just mentioned to you here. Verse by verse through the Bible, showing them that this was in fact so. And so it is with you, and so it is with me. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are a saint. And it may sound funny in front of your name. It may sound funny in front of my name. But you can legitimately call yourself a saint. And it does not sound funny to God who has conducted that separation for you. And He has brought you from evil separating from the wicked one to the righteousness of Christ. So you ask the question, how does this happen? How does this actually happen? Because I don't always feel like a saint. Am I the only one? I don't always feel holy. 
This happens as a result. Look at the text. It's in front of us. It says, to all the saints, here it is, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, that is how this happens. We are in Christ Jesus if we have faith in Him. If we have been born from above, from Him, we are now placed in Him. I love that old spiritual hymn entitled, Were You There? Do you remember how this goes? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they laid Him in the tomb? Were you there when He rose up from the dead? And the implied answer is, if you are a saint, if you were in Christ Jesus, guess what, folks? You were there. You were there. I have been crucified with Christ. How? Because I'm in Him. And I'm found in Him. And the life that I live by the body, I live it. But Christ lives in me. And I am in Him and He is in me. And that is how this true sainthood happens. It is the secret of sainthood, of thus being placed in Christ. This is the concept of union with Christ. It is a theological concept that sadly a lot of churches overlook. Union with Christ, that mystical union. Do you know that it ought not be overlooked? There are 48 references in the New Testament epistles, 48 references to you and I being found in Christ. There are 50 references to being found in the Lord. And there are 34 references to you and I being found in Christ Jesus. So whether we speak of being in Christ or in Christ Jesus or in the Lord, we are in Him. Once we were separated, but now we are united, sharing His death, sharing His burial, sharing His resurrection life. Would you note that no Buddhist has ever been said to be found in Buddha. Have you ever heard such a thing? Or, or no Muslim has ever been found in Muhammad. Or a Mormon is never to be said that I am in Joseph Smith. Many people follow the teachings of their religious founders, right? But nobody except Christians say that they are in that founder. And when you and I come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are spiritually united with Him. And some argue that we have been united with Him from all eternity. Ephesians 1, read it. That we have been placed in Christ from all eternity. But the fact remains that here today, you don't have to wait and wonder if you will become a saint one day. You are a saint. In and of yourselves, you're not holy. In and of yourselves, you're really not that separate. But in Christ, you have been made completely set apart, holy unto the service of God. Can I just point out one more thing under this point here? Will you note that the Apostle says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, notice he says to all the saints. It's an important word we should just point out really quick here. What this means simply is this, that Paul includes everyone. Isn't that great? Isn't that a wonderful truth that Paul includes everyone in this address to every saint, to all the saints? I think, if, I think if you are honest, we have all experienced times when we have been excluded, right? For some reason or another. I can remember times way back in the, on the playground, right? I was one of those guys. You know, you'd have the team captains, right? 
and, and it's time to play football or basketball, and this one wants that guy because he's tall, and this one makes a lot of baskets, or this one, you know, and you go through the list, and you through, and you're watching, and you're waiting, and you're not getting picked. And, and, and you feel like, does anybody value me? Does anybody want me to play for this team? And Paul makes a declaration here which we can miss if we're not careful. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints. Everyone has a place at the table in the Christian church. Did you know that? It, nobody is to be excluded. And I'll tell you, I am, I am exercising my spirit over this issue because I've been part of churches that are clicky, right? They're clicky. And it's kind of like, well, no, we have our little Bible study here and we're pretty good and we, we probably can't use anymore even though we've got a whole living room where people could come and join us. Oh, we like this because we're close and intimate and we're comfortable. And they get into this idea of us four, no more, close the door. And it is such a sad thing because God can bring another saint into your midst and you can exclude them if you don't understand the Scriptures which say to all the saints, Beloved, if you are a saint, you have a place at the table. You have a say in the meeting. You have a participation in the body. Why? Because you are in Christ. And who would we be to exclude somebody who Christ has included in his very body? We are tearing his body apart when we do this. I've seen it, loved ones. And I don't ever want that to be true of us. You know what? I don't think it is true of us. I don't think it is. I think we are such a welcoming community. From day one, we were welcomed in this congregation. We were The joy that we felt here, I believe, was the joy of understanding that not only do we have founding servants, but we have forgiven saints who understand that they are part of being the body of Christ and, and living that out in their life. We need to greet new visitors, but we also need to greet the old visitors as well. The, I should say the long-standing visitors. <laughs> we should embrace others with all their limitations and differences and idiosyncrasies and all of their past baggage why? Because Christ has already embraced them. And who are you to not embrace that which Christ has embraced Himself? These must be together. These must be truths, true of our congregation as well. While we've seen that for a church to be joyful, it must have founding servants. It must have forgiven saints. And I want to just give you a third one this morning here. That it also needs a familiar setting. A familiar setting. You must have a locale, a location, a place if you're going to be a joyful church. Will you note it here? It says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And here it is. Who are in Philippi? Who are in Philippi? Philippi is the familiar location. <clears throat> Why is this important to have? Why is this important to underscore? Because no church, folks, mark it, no church and no church member exists in a vacuum, right? Nobody exists in a vacuum. And no church exists in a vacuum. I want to explain a very important concept here. There are actually two aspects to the church of Jesus Christ. There is the universal church, right? You've heard of this. This is, uh, this is of which we are all members by our spiritual rebirth into the kingdom of heaven. We become members of the universal church. But will you note that the universal church, guess what, is invisible. You can't see it. When you become a member of the universal church, you don't, 
You don't get something marked. You don't get a tattoo. You don't get nothing changes physically. You don't see a change whatsoever when you become part of the universal church. It is manifested, folks, where? In a local church. That's the only way you can ever see a church functioning because the church universal is invisible, but the church local, it's visible. And look around you. This is the church local. This is the church at Hot Springs, you could say. If it's comprised of true believers, this is our familiar setting. And joy happens when people gather in Christ in a familiar setting. If we're going to be a joy-filled church, people have to know where to go. People have to know where to find you. People have to know where the source of joy is. And they can't just say, well, I got this universal idea here and I'll just find joy there. You're missing joy locally. And this is why all of us are called to be part of the visible manifestation of the universal church, which is actually a street address somewhere or a home somewhere, a house church. Could be a living room, but the fact is, is there must be a locale, a familiar setting. I want to just give you a little history of this setting in Philippi. It helps us understand the epistle a little bit better. Philippi was a leading city in eastern Macedonia. It sat along the banks of the Gangites River, 10 miles north of the Aegean Sea, and it was named after Philip of Macedon. Now, Phil mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Philip of Macedon was the father of Alexander the Great. So you can bet this became a fortified, fortified city. A lot of money, a lot of defense went into it. It was founded by settlers, just, just settlers saying, this is a nice place to set up camp, until they struck gold. When they struck gold, then Philip of Macedon became very interested, and he basically took it over and said, my city. And he named it Philippi. At Philippi means city of Philip. And this is where it comes from. It was later conquered by Rome in, in the second century BC, but this is its origination. It's a location. The church was founded later in AD 52 with an amazing, amazing story. And if you're in Acts 16, I just want, I'm just going to be able to dance on some of these topics here. I'm relying upon you to read in your own studies of the Bible many of these references that I'm making here this morning. But Acts 16 is the record of the Philippian church. And you will remember that it starts with Paul on his general missionary journeys throughout Asia. And he receives a vision in verse 9. A vision appears to Paul in the night. A certain young man, a certain man from Macedonia rather, standing, appealing to him, saying, come to Macedonia and help us. Paul instantly believes this is God directly revealing to him that he needs to go there to plant a church. And so he sets out to sea. They have great sailing winds. They make record time to that location, wind at their back. And they come, verse 12, to Philippi, this leading silly, uh, city rather, from Macedonia. And as was his custom here, on the Sabbath day, they went out. Now, there was not a... Um, um, oh, great, the word's slipping me. There was not a synagogue at this time. Just a few Jews. And so there was this gathering instead on the Sabbath day along this uh, riverside, verse 13. And so he believes that this would be a place of prayer, a place where the gospel could be welcomed. And he goes there and he sees several women gathering along this riverside. And one of these women, you'll remember her name in verse 14, was Lydia, this gal from Thyatira, seller of purple fabric. 
Purple fabric uh, required a lot of hard work to get. Purple fabric came from shellfish, the spleen of a shellfish, and you'd get one little pocket of purple out of one shellfish. You had to work it all, and then they would separate all this, and then they would um, uh, pulverize it and dry it and then make it use it as a dye. And, and royal people really loved this, and you could get a lot of money out of this purple fabric. So anyway, Paul begins preaching the gospel to her, and you'll notice in verse 14 that the Lord opened her heart, right? We are born from above. We are born of God. We've all been born once, but we need to be born twice. And here Lydia receives her second birth as a result of the Lord opening her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. This is why you can preach and preach and preach and sometimes never get results. But then suddenly, as a result of a heart being opened, then the responsiveness to God occurs here. And then it says that when she and her household, uh, she believed and then her and her entire household were baptized. And she said, if you've judged me to be faithful, come to my house and stay. And, and they prevailed upon Paul to stay. So on the way to the house, it's just like there's converts coming out of the woodwork here. A slave girl. Uh, this girl probably had a demonic, well, she did have a demonic spirit, probably had the ability to um, be like a fortune teller type of thing. And this was a good um, money-making adventure on the part of uh, these people who found this girl who could kind of tell the future and, and they could make money off her, kind of a you know, traveling bandwagon type of thing here. And the slave girl recognizes Paul and says, these are servants of the Most High God. And Paul did not need satanic advertisement. And it was interesting because later she keeps doing this and uh, it says in verse 18, she continued doing this for many days. But Paul, and I love this, Paul was greatly annoyed. I love that. Man of God, when he's greatly annoyed, business will get done. Things will happen when, when men of God get greatly annoyed. And he turned and he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out of her that very moment. Great news for her. She sees the light. But bad news for the business, right? And the masters of, these, of this uh, young woman realizes their profit's now gone. Their money-making uh, cash cow's no longer there. And they seize them. And as a result, they bring them to the authorities and they are arrested. And uh, they are beaten. I can't get into the whole story here. But they're thrown in jail, okay? So there's convert one, Lydia, in her house, probably several, and several others. And then there's this slave girl. And then it says uh, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns in jail. They started their jail ministry here. And uh, the prisoners were listening to them. Isn't that great? So now the prisoners are hearing them. And suddenly there's this earthquake and you knew the story and, and the doors were opened and then they were set free. And the jailer panics. He's roused out of sleep. The prison doors open and he realizes I'm a dead man because Rome could summarily execute a Roman soldier for dereliction of duty. And he knew that he was going to die because these prisoners, he didn't keep an eye on them. And Paul and Silas and Luke who are with them say, relax, we're not going to run away. This is all going to be fine. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And we see another convert as well as his household. And all of these converts now starting to come out of the woodwork. You can read about that in verses 31 and following. I want to just give you that history here because that is how the church at Philippi was founded in a familiar setting. 
our setting may not be as dramatic or, or as amazing story as that, but this was just a familiar setting with some gals along the riverside praying. That's how simple this started. It then moved into the, the evangelism of people who were, who were godless and wicked and bound by Satan set free. It then moved to a jail ministry. And then it, it reached ultimately the soldiers in charge of that. And then now Paul, as we come a little more current, Paul is now in jail for a different time. Paul is now, 10 years later, in jail again at Rome, not sure if he's going to make it out, for similar reasons as this, just getting in trouble for preaching the gospel, causing, quote, uprisings. And in 62, a, he, uh, 62 AD, he pens this epistle back to the Philippians. Now, I want to just tell you, there's a gentleman mentioned in this book of Philippians, you can turn back there, named Epaphroditus. He's seen later in the, the epistle. And Epaphroditus is likely the pastor of the church of Philippi now, 10, 10 years later. And he has called Epaphroditus to Rome to comfort him during this time of imprisonment. You could send money and gifts and living supplies to your loved ones who were in the Roman prisons. And that's what was happening. Philippians, in such a gracious manner, they send him gifts and good things to help him in his imprisonment. And Paul mentions that they do this out of their great poverty. And isn't that the case? That sometimes those who give the most are the poorest of them all. And this was a poor church. It was just a fledgling little church, but they were giving and supporting the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. While Epaphroditus works with Paul while he's in Rome, working the area of, of Rome while Paul is there, reaches sickness almost to the point of death. And so Paul pens this book, which is in front of you, today, the book of Philippians. And he places it in the hands of Epaphroditus after he is brought back to health. And he sends it back to the Philippian church to say, thank you. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for the, joining me in this very difficult ministry. Thank you for being by my side, even though distance separated us. He, he, he wants to point out their great generosity. He wants to address some unity issues because even though they're saints, there's a couple of saints that are not living in harmony there. Euodia and Syntyche, chapter 4, remember? And they're separated and they're bickering and they're arguing. And Paul says, you, you co-labored with me, ladies. We need to get this together. And he's calling upon the church leadership to help these women. There's unity issues. There's possibly some issues regarding how do I become righteous and chapter three is devoted to a man who tried to become righteous himself all through his life right and then he realizes i have to have a righteousness that's not of my own i have to have the righteousness of christ because i can't do this and we're going to learn all about that and there's other aspects here that we're going to see but this is just a familiar setting there's nothing really special about it and it can be our setting as well but if we are to have a joyful church we need these founding servants forgiven saints and we need a familiar setting. Now, I would like to press on with a couple of other important points this morning, with your permission. I know we, we're putting a lot of information into one sermon here, but I think it's going to help us as we get into this in the future. I want to give you the fourth important, important element of a joy-filled church, and that is faithful shepherds. Would you write that in? Faithful shepherds. Where do you get that? Look at the text. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, here it is, including the overseers and the deacons. The overseers 
and the deacon. Who are these? They are none other than faithful shepherds who have developed in the church over the years. God gifts his church with overseers and God gifts his church with deacons. Overseers responsible for the feeding and leading and shepherding of the the spiritual aspects of the flock. And deacons who are responsible for some of the more practical aspects of the flock. Now, we don't have to turn there, but you can go to Acts 6 and you can see some of these things play out. But it's very rare here for Paul to include people like the overseers and the deacons in a first word address, first verse of an address to an epistle. It's just not often done. In fact, this is the only place it's done. So this tells us that the overseers at Philippi and the deacons at Philippi were very special people to the Apostle Paul. And he singles them out likely because they were probably in charge of advancing that gift. And good overseers and good deacons will do that. They will watch for needs, right? They will act on needs. And they will motivate the church to move towards needs. Needs. Good elders, good deacons will pay attention to the flock. And this is evidently what happened here. Their recognition lands them first attention in this greeting. Overseers, what is this? This is the Greek word episkopoi. It is used in Greek settings as a manager, really, an overseer. It is those who look upon or to look over things. And what are they looking over? They're overwatching the church. In the Bible, these are mentioned in many places in Acts. Acts 14.23, Acts 20, several verses in Acts 20. They are called elders. And these are those who nourish and feed and lead the church. They are overseeing the spiritual welfare of believers. And would you note that this term, overseer, or elder, or shepherd, or pastor, would you please note that those are all synonyms? If, if you are an overseer, you're an elder. If you're an elder, you're a shepherd. If you're a shepherd, you're a pastor. Now, there are some functional differences, which one day I would like to point out, but But these are all interchangeable terms in the Bible. Deacons, similar. Deacons, diakonoi, this is a word for servant. Um, It is used in the scripture for minister as well. But it is those who are responsible for the physical well-being of things. Elders and overseers are responsible for the spiritual well-being of the flock. Deacons are responsible for the physical well-being of the flock. Sometimes there's some blend and some overlap, but for your understanding, elders typically teach and preach and feed and lead in a spiritual sense. Deacons serve and they take care of things. They take care of the building. They take care of needs of people. And we see in Acts 6 that there was a division that arose in a church and the elders were saying, the, the, the spiritual leaders were saying, we, we don't have time to get into this issue of the feeding of, of, and we're talking literal food, serving of tables, waiting of tables. Not that it's beneath us, but we have to devote ourselves to the word and prayer. And so select from among you men who are godly and who have character who can do these things. And here Paul sanctifies this term, which is seen prior to as, as servility. And, and just kind of, you know, kind of being the, the house servant. And now he says they are deacons. And we read later about them that they are to be held in high, high regard. So both of these terms here are very important. I should note also that both of these terms always appear in Scripture in the plural. 
In other words, there's not one elder that runs the show. And there's not one deacon that does all the work. There is a plurality of elders. There is a plurality of shepherds and leaders in a local congregation, as there should be a plurality of deacons, servants, those who commit to the building, to the people, and to the needs. Both of these need to be present in a joy-filled church. Now, for your personal study, you could, you could go to 1 Timothy 3. You don't have to do that this morning, but it points out the spiritual requirements of an elder and the spiritual requirements of a deacon. And Lord willing, in another study, we'll be able to look at those one day. But know this for sure, that no church wants to be without elders and deacons. This is part of finding joy in a local church, that the needs both spiritually and physically will be met. And it's gathering the saints who recognize them and who in other places lay hands on them. Saints from a local congregation saying, we recognize you and we support you in these very important ministries. So there it is, elders and deacons, faithful shepherds. Well, we're running thin on time this morning, but I want to just give you one last final point and I can be brief with this. How do, how do we have a joy-filled church here at Chef? How, how, do we, how do we spark joy in our congregation? Or you could say, why do we have so much joy in our local church? It's because we have founding servants, forgiven saints, familiar setting, faithful shepherds. And fourthly, let's don't leave today without this, fond salutations. Fond salutations. What is this? It's found here in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a fond and familiar salutation that the apostle uses each time he addresses a true joyful church. A church must have this ability, simply put, to greet one another. This is such an important, important concept because here's where joy dissipates and here's where peace dissipates and here's where gospel advancement starts to fall by the wayside when we stop respecting one another enough and we stop greeting one another with simple, simple greetings, fond greetings that show our affection one for another and Paul models this to us as a church. He says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This common greeting that Paul uses is not so common when we actually look at it. And it will spark joy in you as we also convey these mutual, consistent, loving greetings one to another. Grace, what does this mean? Charis, it simply means God's favor and generosity. The favor of God. Spontaneous, unmerited love of God to undeserving sinners. That's what grace is. Do you remember when we studied the grace of God in our attributes of God? This is an attribute of God. And God gives grace. He gives you unmerited love, unmerited favor, things that you didn't earn. Because if you'd earned it, it would no longer be grace. It'd be what? Works. It'd be works. And God does not approach us on works. It is the sum total of God's benevolent activity towards man found in this one word, charis. Grace. Grace to you. Now, grace did not result from our works. Romans 5.8 says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. How much more clear can you be? We were sinners. We were ungodly. And Christ died for us. So we don't deserve grace. Would you note also, there's peace. There's peace. This is the fruit of God's grace. This is important because 
You cannot expect peace in your life. You cannot expect peace in your church. And you cannot expect any peace in this world unless you have first received grace. Do you see that? There's an order here. Just like in math, there's an order of operations. Logical steps that must occur before conclusions can be drawn. And in the same way, grace must first be in your life. That unmerited gift of God of the Lord Jesus to you so that as a result, you can have peace. Peace comes as a result. So many people will say, hey, peace, peace out, brother. You know, peace, peace to you, peace upon you. Well, if it's absent from grace, what are you really granting people? What are you really asking for? You're trying to get a peace that will not be there and it's going to create more anxiety than any peace. Peace comes as a result of receiving God's benevolent action towards man and it is, it is the peaceful result, your experience, that comes from having experienced that. So note the order. You can't deal with your anxiety issues in life. You can't deal with those nervous habits and frustrations that plague us and dog our heels, even as believers, without first understanding that we must have grace to deal with or to eventually get peace. And it's not some generic grace or peace. Will you just note the last couple words in our text here? It's grace to you and peace. Here it is from God our Father. God our Father. I read recently in preparation of this message that that God our Father has more compassion than any earthly mother, all the earthly mothers combined could ever have. Think about that for a minute. Think about the compassion of a mother and the comfort that you receive from mom and this comfort from God our Father supersedes it all. It is grace and peace from God our Father, speaking of the fatherhood of God who gives good gifts and who speaks of closeness and intimacy and love and care for you as a father. But will you also note that it's also from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. And here is where we said the book of Philippians is a Christ-exalting book. Because here, Christ is exalted to equality, really, in this declaration to God the Father. He is, he is put on the same plane as God the Father, as the source of grace, as the source of peace. There's so many people that downgrade the Lord Jesus Christ when it comes to His being and His divinity. And people that don't believe that He is divine and don't believe that he should be placed on the same, that he's the son of God. He is, but we have to understand this, that he is equal to God. If you want to flip to verse uh, chapter 2 real quick here, he uses this as an example of humility. And he says, do not look, uh, verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, he existed in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped. He let it go and he humbled himself. But here Paul exalts Christ as we should. You and I should exalt him to the same level, the same glory of God the Father. We're going to read about that in this book, speaking of his rank and position. Well, folks, I've thrown a lot on you today, have I not? That all came from two verses. Can you believe it? There's so much here. But folks, this is what the anatomy of a joy-filled church. This is where it starts, and we have to go back to our groundwork, our, our, our founding fathers, as it were, who were servants of Christ. And understand that a church, if it's to be true, it has to be consist of forgiven saints, real, living, alive believers. 
We have to have a familiar setting. We need a place. We need a building. We got to pay the light bills. There's no doubt about that because that is our familiar setting where we are that beacon on a hill, as it were. We must have faithful shepherds and pray that God, first of all, thank Him for the faithful shepherds which He has provided in our elders. Pray that He would continue to provide in that leadership faithful shepherds in elders, in deacons, the servants of the church, which we also have servants here. We may not have named them deacons at this point, but, but there are servants here, and this is a gift of God. I, I remember the day that I didn't even mention this. I have to say this, but I didn't even ask for this, but this, this pulpit has grown since I've been here. I don't know if any of you have noticed that. Have you noticed that? It has grown. And I didn't say a word about it, but somebody was watching for a need and seeing that I don't know, maybe because of my height or whatever the deal was, that I was having a little bit difficulty. And in, in one week, there were bricks underneath it. And then now look at this. You can't even really tell that anything has been done. Who did that? Who did that? A servant did that. A deacon did that. Somebody who said, I see a need here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work this. I'm going to act on this. And that brings joy. It brings joy to me. It saves my neck and my back. But it should bring joy to you as well that somebody just moved. They just acted. You don't have to wait for this. That brings joy. And ultimately, there's not a day that goes by when we come into this church that we are not as a family greeted fondly with fond salutations of welcome, good morning, and maybe we could even just start saying grace to you and peace to you. Yes, I have peace. Do you have peace? And begin to, to be this biblical, I mean, we are, but continue in these good things and excel still more. I don't think Sarah and I have ever been part of a more joy-filled church. And could it be, could it be that we have done the math? Could it be that long ago, those, those founding fathers with patriot dream that could see beyond the years could see us in this congregation today, loving one another, serving one another, learning from one another, growing together in Christ because God has brought us together in His Son. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. And what a reason to rejoice. I want to just close with one last little story here. It's written by C.W. Naylor in his book, The Secret of the Singing Heart. He says, over in a far-off Africa on the Congo River stands a native village. Formerly, its inhabitants were sunk in ignorance and lived in mud huts that abounded in filth. A missionary went to the town and proclaimed to them the gospel message. They heard, believed, and accepted it and were saved. They were transformed and set about the transformation of their town. And uh, to celebrate the great change that had come to their lives, they changed the name of their town, and now it is known as Joytown. When he wrote the book, this was a very old book, it was called Joytown. You know what it's called today? City of Joy. And it's in Africa. And he says, concluding this paragraph, he says, Christ can make our town, any town, this town, joy town, if we understand the ingredients that are involved in that process. This location had it, and I pray that we continue to manifest these as we have been through the years. Do you believe that? Do you believe that we can be joy town, that this church can, can maintain this joy and grow in it? I believe we can. And if you do, then I want to invite you to be part of these studies to come in the book of Philippians the epistle of joy. Would you stand and join me in prayer as we close our service today? We have so much to be thankful for and so much to rejoice in.
Heavenly Father, as we gather now to sing and celebrate your Lord's table, um, we just thank you for the wonderful, wonderful body you put together here at Chef Church, Lord. We thank you for those founding fathers who saw it ahead of time. Somehow we, we bless you for them. We are so grateful. We thank you for the saints here today living that can testify to that original vision. And we just thank you for the shepherds, Lord, and all of the servants and all of the things that go into making a service and really a church a church. Father, may we always hold one another in highest regard. May we always remember to greet and love and hug and support one another in any way we can. And ultimately, Lord, would you just bring continued joy to this fellowship. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.